Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Don't forget, our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Beth Mulcahy Esquire is the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. I'd like to welcome you today to our spring 2021 virtual HOA condominium academy. Well, first, let's just do some introductory remarks. Uh, my name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the managing partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I have enjoyed representing HOAs and condominiums in the state of Arizona for 24 years. Um, and our firm currently represents over a thousand community associations uh, throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my board of directors for my association, um, and I have done that on and off for over a decade as well. So I have a unique perspective as a board member also for an association. Uh, well, first, I'd just like to say thank you so much for uh, the different neighborhood services from all over Arizona, helping our firm put together this spring 2021 virtual HOA Condo Academy. We couldn't have done this uh, without their support and without their encouragement to provide this free education for board members, managers, and owners and associations. So I'd like to give a special shout out. Thank you to the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Scottsdale, Surprise, Tempe, um, who have helped us organize this special virtual HOA and condo academy. And truly together we are better. Um, we've come together to put together this wonderful programming for all of you. In years past, prior to the pandemic, um, as you know, we were able to have classes in person in many of these cities. And putting together the Virtual HOA Academy was a first time for all of us, and it's been really successful. Uh, we've had over 100 people in attendance in the prior Virtual HOA Academies. And we have had over 500 views usually of each class that we teach after the class. So there's definitely a need for these classes. And we hope to continue doing them um, in the future as well. First, most important thing I want to say to everybody is happy St. Patrick's Day. I am from Irish descent. Uh, my great grandmother came uh, to the United States from Ireland. And I have a lot of wonderful memories of St. Patrick's Day growing up. Uh, where we had a huge family party with Mulcahy's. And um, my mom also was Irish through her family. Um, and my grandfather enjoyed St. Patrick's Day so much that as part of his one of his dying wishes was that we would all get together every year on St. Patrick's Day and have a big party with our family, which we still continue to do even to this day. It may have to be virtual this year. But anyways, that's really looking forward to tomorrow. And I hope all of you have a wonderful St. Patrick's Day and a green beer if you can find one and some corned beef and cabbage. Okay, so I, one thing I want to uh, start out with is what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to give a quick little overview of some important hot topics that are going on in Arizona right now that I think you need to be aware of. New legislation, COVID update some little bit of information on Prop 208 and how that's affecting associations. Um, but the main part of our class today is going to be discussing the ABCs of enforcement for HOAs and condominiums. And so we're going to show you how to handle these violations, owners that aren't you know, making architectural changes or parking in violation of your documents, leaving their trash cans out, 
what how you can get these owners to comply through fines, lawsuits, demand letters. I mean, we're just really going to dissect this issue to help you as you navigate these issues in your association. Okay, we're going to start out today with a poll because I miss seeing all of you in person and it's important that I know who's here today. I know we have over 100 people, which is awesome. Okay, so it looks like we've got our our poll results in. We have 62% of you here today are on a board of directors for your association. 5% are community managers. 22% are interested homeowners and 11% are other. Interestingly, um, if we look at the statistics on who's here today, we have 13% from Chandler, four from Glendale, six from Goodyear, 13% from Phoenix, 6% from Peoria, 29% from Scottsdale, 1% from Surprise, 6% from Tempe, and then 21% are from other. They chose not to, to respond on that. So great turnout today. Um, we'll know after uh, this class today which cities we need to maybe beef up our marketing on so that we make sure that they're aware of these classes. Okay, let's move right into kind of the hot topics in Arizona right now. Um, The first hot topic I wanna talk about is the Arizona legislature. As you know, our legislature in Arizona is in session right now. It started session on January 11th, 2021. Our firm posts a weekly legislative update on our website, which can be easily accessed through our homepage. So you just go to mulcahylawfirm.com. And every week we put a summary of the new legislation uh, that and how it's moving through the legislature, any changes to the language on the legislation. And so if you're interested in that, please be sure to um, check out our webpage. Um, we also are sharing right now with everybody our publication that we just put out this week on the 2021 summary of pending Arizona legislation. So what are some things to think about for this year's legislature? As you may remember, in 2020, due to the pandemic, we had no new legislation pertaining to associations, which, trust me, is a good thing. This year, we're noticing there are fewer bills that we're monitoring pertaining to HOAs and condos. Some thoughts on the legislature this year. They've got their hands full with covid with, you know, hot topic issues such as um, elections and, you know, different issues that are pertaining to our state right now um, with civil unrest. They also have, of course, as always, the budget for um, the next fiscal year is a very hot topic. So there aren't that many bills pertaining to associations that look like they're really going to move. But the ones that they have, some of them are kind of doozies. So I think we should talk about them because some of them are new. We've never heard of this before, likely a sign of the times. So the first one is uh, Bill 23, House Bill 2030, and this deals with first responder flags. Um, this would just add a first responder flag to the category of flags that can be flown within a planned community or a condominium. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's a controversial bill at all. The next one is House Bill 2052. This one's more controversial. CAI, uh, the local chapter of CAI put out an alert on this bill recently. And a lot of people are watching it because it's kind of unclear what the intent of the legislature was on this bill. Um, So basically, this bill deals with political and community activity, and it would prevent an association from prohibiting or unreasonably restricting a unit owner's ability to peacefully assemble and use private or common elements if done in compliance with reasonable restrictions for use of the property adopted by the board of directors. 
So we're starting to see kind of a sign of the times where you can have peaceful assemblies in your association on private areas or common element, common elements, common areas. This is something that we, we definitely did not ever envision coming, you know, this year. Um, and basically, we'll just have to kind of see where this goes. The good thing is, is that it appears that the association will be able to pass rules regarding, you know, possibly how many people are attending these peaceful assemblies and um, where they can be located within the community. So definitely one to watch this year. House Bill 2170 deals with garnishments and the ability of associations to collect their attorney's fees when they're filing um, a garnishment. That's a good bill for associations who are in favor of that. Senate Bill 1379 is talking about vacation rentals, short-term rentals, enforcement. If you had asked me in 2020 what I thought would be the most likely bills that would pass last year, it definitely would have been a correction on the short-term rentals and giving associations better direction in terms of, you know, can they regulate short-term rentals? Are we going to switch it back to cities, towns, municipalities? And so basically, this is an expected bill. And this bill would allow a city or town to impose a civil penalty against an owner for every 30 days the owner fails to provide contact information. So basically, they're just trying to, you know, get contact information for owners who are using their property as a, um, you know, vacation rental. Um, Another bill, another aspect of this bill is that a city or town may require the owner of a vacation rental or short-term rental to maintain liability insurance. And so we're really keeping an eye on the short-term rental things this year. It's possible, maybe not likely, but it's possible that there will be further direction from the legislature on, you know, short-term rentals and whether or not a city, town or municipality can, um, you know, regulate short-term rentals through zoning or ordinances. So we're we're watching that very carefully. Um, The last one deals with political signs. Um, Again, a sign of the times bill. This bill would extend the time a sign could be left up to 15 days after the general election. If If the sign is for a candidate in a primary election who does not advance to the general election 15 days after the primary election. Um, so again, kind of really interesting how, you know, the legislature is reactive to what's going on in our country right now. We're, we're dealing with peaceful assembly, political signs, and then the issue of short-term rentals, which has been, you know, a topic of discussion for associations now for a couple of years since um, the law changed and, and took away the ability of cities, towns, and municipalities to regulate short-term rentals. So we'll have to see what happens this year. We're closely monitoring the bills. Um, You know, as soon as the final bills are, you know, determined and the governor signed everything that the governor has chosen to sign for this legislative session, we'll be providing you with a final summary of all the bills that pertain to associations. So make sure you're checking out our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. And at the once the legislative session is over, we will have the final bills that are passed for that year. Okay, let's do a quick update on COVID-19. Gosh, it's about a year now, right? Where um, everything in our lives changed. Specifically, we started doing Facebook Lives to inform board members, owners, and managers about COVID-19 issues and how they were impacting associations. It's been kind of a slow year, but it's kind of been a fast year too, um, in terms of lots of thinking done on the part of our firm, looking for ways to help our clients and uh, help our industry navigate these difficult times. So um, it's really hard to believe that last Thursday was one year since Governor Ducey issued the emergency declaration regarding the pandemic. 
One of the great positives of this past year has seen how I've seen many associations and our law firm and my law firm team be able to adjust and pivot and think outside the box and change how we've always done things to, um, you know, new methods and new ways to communicate. So that's great. We've had a good year of teamwork and working together and caring attitudes and associations, which is really nice to see. Um, Arizona has definitely seen relatively lower case rates in the last week, and health officials are now reporting a drop in hospitalizations. As you know, vaccinations in Arizona started the week of December 14th, and the rollout has moved rather slowly because of a limited vaccine supply around the nation due to a number of different reasons, the bad storms in Texas and now in, um, you know, in Colorado. Governor Ducey says he plans to meet the U.S. goal of making the vaccine eligible for everyone 16 and under or 16 and older, excuse me, as of May 1st. So we're, we're continuing, continuing to see the vaccine rollout. Um, kind of the big news since I was last on Facebook Live and Zoom with you with our uh, first HOA Academy, or excuse me, our second HOA Academy class. This is our third is that the new executive order was issued by Governor Ducey, um, as some of you may know, um, and this included reopening gyms and kind of reopening Arizona in general. So as of March 1st, 2021, the percentage capacity limit that was previously in place regarding various businesses has now been lifted. And so my team is going to share with you that executive order from Governor Ducey so that you have it at your fingertips. And, you know, we'll have it on Zoom and also on Facebook Live if you want to take a closer look at. Just some friendly reminders, even though the governor appears to be reopening Arizona, associations are still reminded to implement, use, and follow policies based on guidance from the CDC, U.S. Department of Labor, Occupational Safe and Health Administration, and the Arizona Department of Health Services to limit the potential spread of COVID-19. Um, and don't forget that social distancing and mask protocols remain in place. Um, kind of an interesting thing, I get a lot of emails from associations and I received an interesting one uh, late yesterday from an association where they were starting to reopen. This is a large master plan community in West Phoenix and they're starting to reopen you know, their community clubhouse and they actually were gonna be having um, you know, different meetings in the clubhouse, um, you know, but they were definitely indicating that social distancing and mass protocols and taking people's temperatures as they entered the building were going to be protocols that were going to be in place for quite some time. One question that I've received from a lot of associations is, okay, uh, what about pools? So Governor Ducey, uh, you know, didn't specifically address pools in his March 5th reopening executive order. So we, we thought for sure that he was going to clarify this shortly after the March 5th executive order. He hasn't. Um, and so kind of what to, kind of something to keep in mind is that there's another executive order that he hasn't claimed is void um, regarding pools. And basically, um, you know, what it says is that you shouldn't have gatherings of more than 10 at the pool. Um, and so I think... You know, this doesn't make sense that this executive order, the other one is still out there since water parks have been given permission to reopen. But until the governor provides further clarification and direction on this, we still think it's best for associations to encourage residents that are meeting at your pool to not gather in groups um, in excess of 10. It's probably just a dotting the I crossing the T type of thing. 
Um, but technically it hasn't changed, um, you know, until he withdraws that executive order that probably will be done when he issues his next executive order in the future. Our team has some great cheat sheets on COVID-19 and reopening the common areas and HOAs and condominiums. We also have a great cheat sheet on running virtual meetings. Um, Just a quick note on virtual meetings. I'm getting a lot of questions now from associations. Can we go back to meeting in person? And is it a good idea? And so just as, as a clarification point, you know, just be careful because, you know, we're going to be doing a poll here in a minute on um, the vaccines and whether or not you've been vaccinated and whether or not you think an association should require vaccination to enter the common areas. I think this is a time of caution for associations um, using Zoom or any other virtual platform that you've been using to have your regular board meetings and your annual meetings is really the safest thing to do right now. Of course, if you want to have an in-person meeting, all directives from the, the governor's order would you know, indicate that you are able to do that. Just be mindful of social distancing, require mask wearing, and have somebody taking temperatures um, if they are entering the meeting. In addition, you should have uh, you know, some sort of a sign indicating that you're entering at your own risk. One thing, one creative thing that you might want to do is if you do start having in-person meetings again for your community, put a limit on the number of people that can attend based upon the space that you have available or do it outside. Okay, next up, the stimulus checks. So I'm sure many of you saw the news over the weekend that many Americans, um, you know, will soon be receiving stimulus checks. Some people have already started receiving them over this past weekend. And the government will continue to disperse um, payments of $1,400 to many Americans throughout the next several weeks. This is just a really good time as a reminder to reach out to members in your association regarding any past due balances that have not yet been turned over to the association's attorney for collections. People may have some extra money in their pockets uh, due to the stimulus checks. And it would be a great time for boards to get these owners to clear up any past due assessments or any other charges that are owed to the association. As for files that are with an attorney for collections, um, we've learned that the stimulus check is garnishable income. And so my firm is closely reviewing collection files right now, taking into consideration the possibility of moving forward forward with bank garnishments against anybody that we have judgments against because that $1,400 is in the bank here for many Americans. And it's a good opportunity for the associations to try to collect the amounts that are past due. Okay, we're going to do two quick polls and then we're going to get into, um, you know, a couple of different other subjects, uh, the topic of the day, which is enforcement. So the first one is first poll question is have you been vaccinated? So the question is yes or no, or I'd prefer not to say. Um, And then the second question is, how do you feel about an association requiring vaccination proof to enter common areas, such as like the gym, clubhouse, pool? And the the, answers on that are no way, agree, good idea, or unsure. Okay, so our poll results are in. So 61% of you have been vaccinated. That's awesome. 31% say no, and 8% prefer not to say. So interesting that we have such a high percentage of people already vaccinated who are on this call today. Um, The second question is, how do you feel about an association requiring vaccination proof to enter common areas? So 40% of you said, no way, bad idea. 
28% said good idea, and 32% said unsure. Interestingly, I was interviewed about two weeks ago for a national publication, and we were talking about can associations require it? And my comment was, I think it, it could be considered overstepping. The only way that you would potentially be able to require it, and I'm not advising this, frankly, would be to amend your CCNRs to make it a requirement. Some associations are saying, well, we could just pass a rule because we can make rules regarding the common areas. You know, it's possible, but I think we have to weigh invasion of privacy and, um, you know, people's personal choices during this difficult time in our country. And I don't really want one of my associations to be the test case that goes all the way up to the Arizona Supreme Court or the United States Supreme Court on this issue, because that would be really expensive. Okay, so... Let's move right on along to another question that we've received is, do HIPAA laws apply to community associations? So it's my opinion that HIPAA laws do not apply to community associations. Um, You know, this kind of came up a little bit kind of in a related way when we were asked if we could, associations were asked if um, when we put out a notification that somebody had COVID in the community, Residents wanted to know if who the person was, or is it my neighbor, or um, have I been exposed to them? And you know, we were very careful never to give out the name of anybody who uh, you know was diagnosed with COVID. And um, if somebody was directly uh, in contact with them, of course, the association was notifying that a resident you know, who has tested positive for COVID and was in the gym or was at the pickleball event on Saturday or whatever. Um, But we never did give out the name unless the owner agreed to it. And we didn't have any. One more thing I want to mention, just that I thought I made a note of this, but I guess maybe I didn't on my, my notes for today. I just read an article either yesterday or today in the Arizona Republic saying that in the first 10 days of the dispensaries in Arizona, selling recreational marijuana, they had $3 million in sales. And so I think we're already starting to see questions from clients of ours asking for our assistance and updating their rules to address smoking of recreational marijuana in the association's common areas or use of recreational marijuana. So if you start to see that become an issue in your association, make sure that you reach out to our firm or reach out to your general counsel law firm to help you craft some rules to help your association as you navigate with the legalization of recreational marijuana. Okay, let's talk a little bit about enforcement. Um, what are the most common violations that we see in associations? So we get contacted on a daily basis uh, by clients, board members, managers, associations, condos, planning communities regarding owners who aren't following the CCNRs, rules of the association, maybe even the bylaws. So what are the most common violations that we see? So a lot of tenant violations where we have either short-term rental violations or a bad tenant having wild parties, not following the association rules. Um, Another common violation would be not getting architectural approval. So if somebody repaints their house, does a remodel, changes their property in some way, removes all their landscaping, all of those things typically do require approval from the association's board or architectural committee. Not maintaining landscaping, um, not putting away your trash cans, parking, parking, parking. We hear a ton of questions on parking. How can we enforce it? Um, What's the best way to enforce it? We're going to be talking a lot about this. 
Um, smoking is kind of a newer issue, um, especially in condos um, where we have either owner smoking tobacco or possibly even recreational marijuana um, in the in their unit in a common area or maybe even in the common areas of the association, like at the pool or sitting on a bench. Um, signs, flags, um, you know, we've had a lot of questions in the past year about um, controversial signs, whether it was, um, you know, Black Lives Matter or Trump flags or whatever. All these things have been hot topics this past year. And then last but not least, the one, you know, kind of every association has people that are not paying assessments. If you're lucky enough to be in an association where you have all of your owners paying their assessments, that's great. But what we found is that um, every association has at least a small percentage of delinquent owners who aren't paying assessments. Okay, so we're going to start out first, just kind of talking a little bit about what's the process when you have an owner who is not complying with your documents. What's the process that we follow as um, an association to get the owner to come into compliance? First, I'd like to share with you two cheat sheets that our firm has put out. Um, One is called Enforcement of Governing Documents. And the second one is called Levying and Collecting Fines in a Community Association. Both of these documents are amazing resources for you as you navigate violations in your associations. For those of you who may not be familiar with our firm's cheat sheets, we have about 65 different cheat sheets on basically any topic that can help an association's board, manager, or owner better understand how associations operate, what Arizona law says on associations. And so all of our cheat sheets are on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. And also we're sharing the ones that are pertinent to today's uh, class in the, um, on both platforms on Zoom and and also on Facebook Live. Okay, so what's the first thing you should be doing when you have an owner who has a violation in your association? We suggest you first start out with a courtesy reminder letter This is just a friendly way to say, you know, you're in violation of the association's documents. Either the board or the management company mails this letter or posts it on the property. We have some associations that have the management company do door hangers um, that they place on the front door of the home. Um, You know, if it's a rental, that becomes a little more complicated because the owner may not be living there. But um, some of them do the door hangers and they send a letter. Most of our clients just send a friendly reminder letter stating that, you know, you're in violation of the the section in the documents, giving them a certain period of time to correct the violation. And in most cases, what we find is that when you send the owner a letter, they comply. Most of them comply. You know, maybe 30% blow it off and don't do anything. But, you know, 70% of the owners, you know, want to be good neighbors and they comply. The other 30%, then you have to take the next step, which is going to be sending a more formal violation letter. So if the the violation isn't corrected in the time period that um, is given in the friendly reminder letter, then you up the ante a little bit and do a formal violation letter. And usually the board, the management company, or maybe even the association's attorney sends the formal violation letter. And this is just like its name, it's formal. We start threatening fines. Um, You know, we, under Arizona law, we can levy fines and we're gonna talk about that here in a minute. Give them a time period to respond um, to the violation. Um, If we do find them, and we'll talk about that even more in a second here, 
there's some language that you have to have in this formal violation letter. So what we recommend is that you indicate, you know, what the violation is, what section in the documents they have violated. And then you also have to put this section in your violation letter. It's specific language that state law requires. And it says you have the option to petition for an administrative hearing on this matter in the Arizona Department of Real Estate pursuant to ARS 32-219901. And basically, it's just a requirement for the formal violation letter. Um, and all this is outlined on our cheat sheet. So if you didn't weren't able to write down specifically what I said, look at our cheat sheet on enforcement governing documents and that language is in there. Okay, so let's just kind of do a quick little rewind. So if you have a violation, try to do the friendly reminder letter first. If that doesn't work, then up the ante, move to a formal violation letter. In the formal violation letter, you should indicate what the violation is, what section they're violating, the specific statutory language that um, is required, talking about they have the right to go to the Department of Real Estate ask for administrative hearing, which we're going to talk a little bit more about that process in a minute. And then also threaten fines. Now, fines are, are something that we're going to take a minute to talk about because associations have the right to fine an owner. And basically what, how it works is that the fine has to, you give notice of the violation to the owner. Typically, that's going to be in the formal violation letter. You give the owner the opportunity to be heard, which gives them a chance to either write back an email or a letter or come to a hearing in person or you know virtually right now. And then after we hear the response from the owner, then the next step is then we make a decision. Are we going to continue to find the owner um, or not? Are we going to you know not find the owner? So when you're doing fines and your formal violation letter needs to set this up to be in compliance with the law. So A, the fine has to be reasonable. So we the fine you know has to be consistent with the problem. So let's give an example. Let's say that you have a trash can that's left out. Um, you know, a thousand dollar fine for a trash can being left out is going to be considered unreasonable. Maybe you start out with like a $25 or $50 fine and then it continues to progressively get higher for repeat violations of that same trash can violation would be a good example. Now we'd have to give them notice of the violation an opportunity to be heard. So that first formal violation letter will set all this up. They'll say, you know, here's the violation. If you dispute this fine, um, you know, if you dispute this violation, then you can contact us by sending an email or a letter or appearing virtually or in person at the next board meeting. And then at the next board meeting, the board makes a determination whether or not you're going to find the owner or not find the owner. Um, and really, you should just take a look at the circumstances. Maybe somebody writes a letter back saying, you know, we apologize, we screwed up, it won't happen again, and the board doesn't levy the fine. Maybe the person has been doing the same thing for a year, and um, the only way to get their attention is to levy the fine. Some important things to, to note about fines. Again, the fine has to be reasonable. If you're not sure if the amount that you're choosing for the fine is reasonable or not, talk with your manager. Talk with your association's attorney. We can give you a, a good, you know, feedback in terms of. I think that's a little too high, or I think that's a little too low. Kind of like a common problem that we'll see is that, um, you know, like let's say you have somebody parking an RV in your association on the weekends, and that's not allowed. It may be cheaper for the owner to pay the fine to the association. Like if your fine's really low, artificially low, like twenty five dollars. 
versus having to take the vehicle out to RV world and pay $75 a night. So we want to make the fine large enough that it's going to encourage compliance, but not so large that it's considered unreasonable if a court's looking at this. Okay, so once we you know, determine whether the fines are going to be added to the account or not, um, it's really difficult to collect fines. Um, one of the really great things about being a seasoned attorney, and I can't believe I'm calling myself a seasoned attorney, but I've been around for a while now, um, is that I have been watching legislation created since 1995. And so I kind of, I know the history on a lot of this and it's really actually pretty interesting. So way back in the day, a long time ago, uh, we used to be able to uh, record a lien for unpaid fines. Of course, that was taken away many years ago. Now, the only way that we can collect a fine, um, which is another legislative you know, action that they took that said that you can, associations can only collect fines against an owner if we file a lawsuit against the owner and obtain a judgment, and then we record that judgment with the recorder's office. So the reality here is, you know, back in the 1990s, when I first started practicing law, you know, we could just levy a fine and record a lien on somebody's lot. We could even foreclose the lien, if you can believe that, for a fine. That's not the law anymore. Now the legislature has made it really difficult for us to collect on fines. So if we levy a fine against an owner, we're going to have to spend money to collect it spend money in in the form of filing a lawsuit. So the reality on fines are, you know, that we, we can threaten them, right? But if you only have somebody that has $500 in fines, you can threaten them, you can levy them. But if the dollar amount on the fines is less than $1,000, it really doesn't make sense to be filing a lawsuit against the owner you know, to collect $200 in fines. Why? Because you're going to spend $800 in legal fees getting the judgment. Now, of course, you can do fines as an add-on to an unpaid assessments lawsuit. That's commonly done. But just filing a lawsuit for $200 in fines, you know, is probably not good business judgment. So just recognize that, you know, fines are complicated in that way. Our legislature has put so many restrictions on them that, we have to take the step of actually getting a judgment to collect the fines. Okay, let's talk a little bit about self-help options. So what is self-help? So let's just kind of do a quick review. So we've got a violation on a property. We can do a courtesy reminder letter. We can do the formal demand letter. We can levy fines against the owner. The next one is self-help. What is self-help? Self-help is something that is going to be in your CCNRs of your association and possibly in your bylaws, but you know, 99% of the time in your CCNRs. And it basically allows the association's board to correct a violation on a lot or unit at the owner's cost if the owner fails to correct a violation in a timely manner. So that's what self-help is. It's you know getting the job done for them. It has to be in the association's documents. Um, you have to specifically follow the procedures that the documents require. Typically, there's a notice requirement. Um, we sometimes have to post it on the door. And so, um, you know, it has to be in your documents in order to do it. Uh, make sure you follow the procedure in your documents to a T. And make sure you know that once you pay for the cost for whatever needs to be done, whether it's repainting or fixing something, fixing a broken fence, that you're going to then have to typically 
file a lawsuit against the owner to collect the money that the association spent in fixing whatever the problem is. So, you know, we have to really, when we're looking at self-help, yes, it's great in that, okay, we get it fixed, right? Quick, let's get somebody out there. Let's follow the notice provisions and the documents. Let's get this taken care of so it looks nicer. But then on the back end, there's kind of some problems. Like now we got to start over and send a letter to the owner saying you owe this money. And if they refuse to pay it, then we have to file a lawsuit to collect on it. Um, so it's, it's a little bit complicated. So we want to think all of that through if we're planning on doing self-help, if it's an expensive fix. Also, one other thing, just a word of caution that I want to mention is that, you know, sometimes you get these owners, I guess I'm going to call them lazy owners, and they see the association coming on and doing a self-help and cleaning up the landscaping. And now they think, oh, cool. I don't have to do landscaping anymore because they'll just come on and do this for me all the time. And so we don't want self-help to be, you know, like a, a continual thing every month. Um, you know, that's not something that we want to do. We also want to think about, hey, is this person about ready to lose their property at a sheriff sale or a trustee sale? We may not ever collect that money that we spent in self-help cleaning up their property. So these are all considerations that you should be talking about with your manager and with your attorney as you're deciding whether self-help is a good idea for your association. Just a quick poll question for everybody. Um, our fifth poll for today, I'd like to hear from you. Do you know if your association's documents authorize the use of self-help by the board? So I'm curious because a lot of times when I teach these classes, People are surprised when I'm, it's, it's, it's great because when I see a live audience, I miss the live audience. But when I see a live audience, I can see people shaking their heads or no, yes. Um, and so these polls kind of help me understand whether or not your association has the same thing. So 30% of, 37% of your association say you have self-help, 17% say no, 47% say not sure. So for the 48 people, 47% that aren't sure, that might be something, a little homework for you. Look at your CCNRs and see if you have the right to do self and self-help because it might be a way for you to clean up some violations in your association quickly. Okay, just a quick word on policies. So it's a good idea for associations to have a policy in place. The board has a policy in place as to how we're going to handle violations so that if you're self-managed, that everybody's clear, this is how we're going to move forward with violations. Or if you have a management company, that you're giving them clear directions so that they can just move forward quickly on violations. Um, and at your board can just vote on this at a regular board meeting, open board meeting. And basically, it will just set up the timeline. So this is how we're handling violations in our association. Courtesy reminder letter goes out. Um, how often inspections are done, I think it's really important that you communicate that to your manager and make sure that they're doing that. Um, check your contract with the management company to see how often you're required, they're required to do that and then make sure that they're actually doing it. And then having these policies in place so that you don't get so far behind on violations. Because I go to a lot of board meetings and something that I hear sometimes from boards are, we haven't done any violations you know, in six months or nine months and think about all the different things that have, you know, gone by during that time that haven't been corrected. And then it becomes kind of a, an avalanche of problems to try to fix it. So having a policy in place so that everybody is communicating and on the same page, this is how we handle our violations is a really great idea. And also maybe setting up a fine policy if that's something your association wants to do 
you're not required under Arizona law to do that. The state statute gives you the authority to fine. But if you want to put together some parameters on that, that could be helpful. Okay, what do we do now in our, our phasing that we're talking about on dealing with the violations? So we've sent the courtesy reminder letter, didn't work. We've sent the formal violation letter, didn't work, let's say. We find the owner doesn't change anything. You know, maybe self-help isn't an option. So what are some other things, more legal things that you can do to get the violation corrected? So we have two things that we're going to talk about next, and that's going to be lawsuits and going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate. So let's knock out lawsuits first. So this is going to be for serious violations in your association. So we filed lawsuits previously on behalf of associations to get violations corrected for um, parking, in some cases where parking, you know, we had a, a case many, many years ago where we had this limo driver who was parking his limo every night in such a way that the back of the limo was um, protruding over the sidewalk and into the street. Um, that warranted a lawsuit. We've had lawsuits over unfenced pools, building a guest house without approval of the association's architectural committee or board. So basically, these are going to be violations that are more serious. You know, we're not going to go typically to litigation, file a lawsuit in superior court for, you know, just a small little like having needs in your lot type of thing. These are going to be either a lot of violations. So as a whole, there's a lot of things that need to be addressed or one major one. Okay, so what's the 411 on, on litigation? Um, it costs money, right? There's a lot of costs. If you file a lawsuit in Superior Court, you need to have an attorney. We find that these lawsuits, if they're uncontested, in order to get a court order, ordering the person to do what they need to do on their lot, you know, it's usually going to be around $2,000 to $3,000 in legal fees. You know, there's also a lot of court costs. There's filing fees and service of process fees where we have to serve them with the lawsuit. So start to finish, you're looking probably at $4,000 in legal fees. Now, the owner will be required, will get a judgment against the owner for those amounts, um, assuming that the court agrees that they're reasonable. So you can collect it against the owner. The benefit of, of going to litigation, filing a lawsuit in Superior Court is the judge orders them to do what they're supposed to do. And we get a judgment for any attorney's fees and costs. And we see these type of judgments issued all the time. So these are, you know, cases that associations should win as long as you're making good choices on the violation that you're pursuing. And it is, in fact, a clear-cut violation of your documents. But, you know, some of the, the negatives are, okay, so the court orders it. And actually, going back to the limousine case that I talked about, in that particular case, the limo driver, he continued to do it even after the court issued an order saying, stop doing this. And the court actually had a, um, an order to show cause hearing and ordered that the limo driver, for lack of a better word, come to court to tell the judge why the limo driver was not um, complying with the court's order. And, and actually one of, I mean, I have great stories, truly, for 24 years of stories dealing with HOAs, I, I have really some very funny stories, this being right at the top of the list. So I'm at the hearing with the judge and it's an order to show cause hearing, which is serious, meaning that the judge is mad. This person didn't comply with this order and the hearing starts, limo driver is not there. And um, about five minutes into the hearing, and this, mind you, is within the time frame of September 11th, okay? So security is pretty uh, beefed up at the courthouse. 
five minutes into the hearing, you know, we're showing the judge pictures that the limo driver continues to park his limo. So it's protruding into the street and over the sidewalk. Five minutes into the hearing, the limo driver comes running into the courtroom, okay, and sits down. And then maybe a minute later, the security at Maricopa County Superior Court comes running into the room, you know, with like basically in very agitated form, you know, going to arrest the limo driver. Well, the limo driver had parked his vehicle, his limo in front of the courthouse in a no parking zone, um, which is absolutely hilarious because obviously we're there because he was doing the same thing um, in his association. You know, it was really hard for me to keep my corners of my mouth from turning up smiling just because I'm trying to keep it serious. But this how this is unfolding is was absolutely hilarious. And basically, the once the security guards came into court and explained to the judge that the limo driver had parked in the loading no parking zone in front of the courthouse and he needed to move the limo right away, the, ju- the judge uh, told the bailiff to cuff him and put him in jail. So, I mean, it's serious. So these are serious matters. So if if we file a lawsuit and somebody violates it, there are consequences would be my point. And the the limo was towed. And interestingly, the limo never came back to the association again after that. So, okay. So how is COVID affecting courts? We've seen cases are taking a little bit longer to work through the process, but the courts are definitely in session the judges are ordering a lot more settlement conferences. They want these cases to settle now more than ever. So if we get involved in litigation, it's, you know, it does take a little bit longer. We're seeing about a two to three month longer delay on certain things. And also we're seeing judges really push to get cases in front of a settlement conference judge or into some sort of mediation or informal settlement discussions. Okay, let's talk about the other legal thing that you can do if we have a violation of the CCNR. So we talked about lawsuits. The other one is going to the state of Arizona Department of Real Estate. And we're going to be sharing with you right now the website for um, the Arizona Department of Real Estate. Um, So what types of cases regarding associations um, does the ADRE hear? So basically, they will hear any dispute between an owner and the association regarding any violation of the association's documents or state law. This is not a forum where management companies can be sued. This is not a forum where um, construction defect matters can be litigated. This is basically how this works is, and this was set up, been watching the legislature for many years, but this was set up as an informal place where associations and owners can resolve disputes. Now, the reality is, is that associations very rarely use this ADRE to, you know, get compliance for violations. Rather, what we see is that owners who are unhappy with their association go to the ADRE and file a complaint to have their issue heard. So what are the typical things that we see? We see cases on an association didn't increase their assessments the right way, the homeowner thinks that, or um, the association isn't giving me records and I'm requesting them. And so basically what happens is that the owner or the association can submit a petition and all these forms are on the website that we just shared with you. Basically, we the petition form is right on the website. They have to file a filing fee. Single issue is $500. It's a short form where they just indicate what their beef is, what the problem is. You know, basically then what happens is the Department of Real Estate 
opens a file on it after the filing fees paid and the, the form the paperwork is submitted and they send it to the other side. And like I said, mainly we're seeing owners using this ADRE to have disputes uh, addressed. And so the other side gets to file a response and then they issue a hearing date usually pretty quickly, like within 90 days of the response being filed. And there's a hearing where an administrative law judge hears the case, basically. And there aren't going to be any attorney's fees that are awarded that's by law. They're not allowed to award attorney's fees in this you know, venue of the ADRE, but they'll hear the issues. And we've had a number of these cases over the years that go to the ADRE Typically, we're defending the association against a claim that's been made by an owner. And one thing that I'd say is that the administrative law judges do a great job. They are very thorough. They understand the issues. And we feel that the rulings have been consistent with the documents and state law. So that's a good thing. And it gives owners a place where they can go and have their issues resolved with only paying like a $500 filing fee for a single issue or, you know, each additional issue would be 500. So if they have three issues, it'd be 1500. And it, it gives them a fast, cheap place to have somebody who's independent, an administrative law judge, look at the issue and issue a ruling. One kind of interesting thing is that the administrative law judge can levy a civil penalty although we don't see that very often. So just interesting for you to to be aware of that. And oftentimes, if it's an invalid, like a a type of case that doesn't have any merit, um, or is the type of case that's just meant to harass the association, the association can do a motion to dismiss, and sometimes the judge will just dismiss the case right at the outset. So these are your different remedies that you have as you're dealing with violations. Um, Don't forget, you know, a courtesy reminder letter, formal violation letter, ability to fine, self-help, going to file a lawsuit, and then the Arizona Department of Real Estate. So I think we've given you a lot of really good tools today that can help you as you have violations in your association. Now I'd just like to take a couple minutes, just the last few minutes, and talk about what are some specific resources for specific problem violations that we see often. So if you're having issues with rentals, We have a great cheat sheet on how to effectively work with rental properties. The most important thing I want to remind you on, on if you have a bad renter, the best advice I can give you is make it hurt in the pocketbook for the landlord. The minute that you can escalate this to the landlord with fines and attorney's involvement through a formal violation letter, the faster the issue will be resolved. Okay, parking problems. If you have parking problems in your association, check your documents, okay? See what they say about parking. Um, Most common parking issues we see are overnight on-street parking, RVs, campers, commercial vehicles, boats, and trailers. Check your documents to see specifically what it says about those items. If you need help interpreting what your documents say, make sure you reach out to your legal counsel or to our law firm to help you with that. Who can enforce the, the documents on this? It's the board. Um, the association. And so, you know, you can use all the enforcement strategies that we've talked throughout this seminar and how to enforce it. You know, some things that I didn't talk about that would be add-ons to, you know, the violation letter, the fines, et cetera, lawsuit would be towing. Again, if you want to tow a vehicle, it has to be in your CCNRs, putting those nasty sticky stickers on the driver window for violations 
using a boot to keep the vehicle in place. Before you do any of those things, make sure you're checking with your legal counsel to make sure that you have the legal authority to do that in your documents. Okay, next, just kind of quick little subject that we see a lot on violations is refusal of owners to pay assessments. We have a great cheat sheet on this called Our Firm's Secrets to Effective Collection of Delinquent Assessments and Available Legal Remedies. We're going to be sharing those uh, with Zoom and also on Facebook Live here shortly. There aren't that many associations that have a serious delinquency problem right now. Like, let's go back to like 2008, where, you know, things were really starting to tank and people were not paying their assessments. We're not seeing that right now. Um, We think it's probably because a lot of the stimulus money that's been um, given in our state and on the federal level, we've kind of always been waiting for the shoe to drop on this since the pandemic started last March. And really, we haven't seen a large uptick in unpaid assessments by owners. But the most important thing is act in a timely manner. If you have an owner who is not paying, you need to be constantly contacting that owner and escalating it up to the attorney as quickly as possible. Because the larger you allow that debt to get, the more difficult it's going to be to collect. Um, And so one thing, just a, a parting thought on this, if any of you are in the audience today and you have an owner who's not paying assessments, and you want a free review of the file, we'll do a quick credit eval for you on that owner and let you know what we think is the best way to collect um, assessments. So all you would need to do is email me at bmulcahy, M-U-L-C-A-H-Y, at mulcahylawfirm.com and send us over the information on the owner, the owner's name, address, and how much they owe. And um, you know we'll be sure to do a quick credit evaluation for you on that delinquent owner and give you advice as to what we think the next step is to collect on that person. Okay, last but not least, I'm only one minute over, which is really good. I'm usually a little bit more than that. So what do you do about owners who make a change to their property without approval? So no architectural approval. Let's say they put it in a new garage door, they paint, they change out their windows, they put on a bonus room. They add a wall, they, you know, take out a fence that's always been there, landscape modifications, RV gates, golf cart, concrete pads, we've seen it all. So first, check to make sure that what the owner changed actually violates, you know, or actually required uh, architectural approval, number one. So most of the examples I gave would require architectural approval. Kind of the best way to handle on this is just a little bit different fine tuning from how we would normally handle a violation. So we suggest the friendly violation letter first and then ask the owner to submit an application. Give them the form with the friendly violation letter. Try to work it out. Okay. Once they submit the form, if the application is denied, because this is just never something that we would allow, make sure you're talking with your attorney on what's the best way to get the owner to return the property to the original condition. Um, if the application is approved, move on. You know, Tell them in the future, any of these architectural changes need approval. Please do not do an architectural change without getting the written approval of the architectural committee in the future. A common question I get is, does our board have to approve this architectural change that they made without getting permission just because the the owner already did it? Um, The answer to that is no, you don't. But it does complicate things. I'm I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, it's complicated when you have somebody who's put out a large cash outlay 
to, you know, change something and they didn't get approval because the scrutiny that will be given by the court, um, you know, there's a case in Arizona that says that owners should be allowed to have the free use and enjoyment of their property. So we're balancing what the CCNR say in terms of architectural approval, which frankly can be something that could be open to interpretation versus what they did. So if you're in one of those situations where the owner didn't get approval, they spent a bunch of money and now the board wants to deny it, you, you definitely want to get your legal counsel involved to give you good advice so that you set it up for success if you do have to file a lawsuit to get them to, to take it down. Okay, so final parting thoughts on architectural approval. Um, you know, it's the same legal remedies that we talked about. Courtesy violation letter, give them the form, ask them to fill it out, kind of did the analysis of if they submit the form, if you're going to disapprove it, make sure you get legal counsel involved. If you're going to file a lawsuit, really think through how much is this going to cost? Um, you know, is there another way that we might be able to get the owner to comply, maybe even going to the ADR and having the ADRE rule um, in favor of the association. Okay, so that's the end of our uh, presentation on the ABCs of enforcement. Now we're going to switch over and start answering the questions that we've received. First question is from Barnes. Do you handle collections in Tucson? Uh, Yes, I do. So that's question number one out of 26. Our firm handles all legal matters pertaining to associations, violations, collections throughout the state of Arizona. Um, Although our office is located in Phoenix on Camelback um, on 31st Street, all courts now are operating in a virtual platform. So it's um, we're all over the state and it doesn't cost you any extra money because we're able to appear everything virtually. Everything's virtual right now at the courts anyways. Next question from Dana. Is it permissible for an HOA activity or a club in an HOA to require full vaccination to participate. Um, My opinion on that is it's not advisable at this point. Is it permissible? You know, I would say no at this point because I I don't believe that any of you have that in your documents, you know, that they would have that as a requirement. Um, And like I said earlier in the presentation, I think it's an invasion of somebody's, you know, privacy, frankly, to do that. Next question is from Carol. Our CCNRs are very specific that parking on any street is strictly prohibited. If the community wants to change this, does this require a formal change to the CCNRs? Or can this be done by a rules change by the architectural committee? So Carol, good question. If your CCNRs say something specific, you cannot change it by doing a rule change. So the short answer on that would be no. The section in the CCNRs on parking is enforceable and should be enforced by the board until you amend that section in the CCNRs and take that out. Tony, next question, number four. Our HOA has an on-site restaurant and bar, and board members are required to be the holder of the liquor license. We are listed as managers, but a previous board had approved a policy giving day-to-day control of the association to a general manager from our management company. The policy states that board members will not interfere with the day-to-day operations of the facility. The GM is not on the license. Is this not a conflict as we assume responsibility for the operation but have no control? Okay, so Tony, that's a very good question. Um, I think that's something that you need to escalate to your legal counsel because if you're listed as the holder of the liquor license, there either need to be very formal policies in place in terms of compliance with the rules um, you know, as prescribed by the state pertaining to, you know, the sale of alcoholic beverages. 
So I think bring your legal counsel in on that. You guys need to meet in the middle. Um, either the GM is the authorized license person or, um, you know, we, we need to have specific policies in place so that the GM is, is following all the restrictions that the state places on this. I have another liquor license question. I don't know if any of you know this, but in my prior career, um, I used to work as a liquor lawyer for Miller Brewing Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So when I was in law school, I worked in their legal department for almost three years. So I, I actually have very familiar with liquor law through that position. Okay, so I'm a new planned community board director. Our community has a restaurant with a liquor license. Our community has an outside agent of record on the liquor license, but our management company, general manager, is wanting directors to sign on to the license. Do directors at this level need to be Arizona residents? What are the director's responsibilities when the restaurant employees are hired and trained by the management company? Okay, so this kind of goes along with Tony's question, Evie. This is something that you, you need to get your legal counsel involved in. I mean, I have to say, in with representing over a thousand associations, I have never seen a board have individual board members be the liquor license holders um, for a restaurant on the premises. So I think you you need to open the dialogue with your legal counsel, or maybe our firm can come in and, and talk about this more with your board. But there are some red flags that I have here, and I think all these issues need to be talked out. Okay, sixth question is from Karen. Community manager does not want to enforce patio and common elements violations because there are too many and it is too expensive to enforce them. How can we ensure violations are enforced? Um, okay, Karen, so I think it's odd that the community manager is saying we're not gonna enforce it because there are too many and it's too expensive. I think what you need to do is, I mean, I don't know if this are like nitpicky things like the hose isn't in a hose holder or if they're more serious things, you know, like this, something on the patio, like they changed out the wall and it used to be a block wall and now it's a, you know, a chain link fence or something. So I don't really know what the violations are, but I mean, there's a difference between being a nitpicker on some of these violations and actual violations that it's clear it's a violation in your documents. So a couple of things to keep in mind, the board dictates policy, not the community manager. The manager, the attorney, your insurance agent, your reserve specialists, we're on your team, but you're the boss. So we can give you our opinion and our advice, um, but ultimately you make the decision. So I would open up the dialogue with the manager and figure out why exactly, you know, they're not enforcing it and come to some common ground. Maybe you even need to get your legal counsel involved to help you navigate what's the right way to handle these violations. Seventh question is from Clark. How should we handle short-term rentals and even condo owners that want to rent out a room? Okay, so short-term rentals, you need to look at what your documents say. You know, do they allow less than 30-day rentals? Um, you know, or do you have a minimum rental period? Look at what your documents say and then enforce them. If your most documents in Arizona right now do not have anything in there about short-term rentals because the law changed. And when the law changed, a lot of associations... You know what the law said is if you want to have short-term rental restrictions in your CCNRs, you have to pass an amendment to your CCNRs to have that language in there. And a lot of associations, it's really difficult to amend CCNRs. So 
Um, if I had to guess, maybe your association doesn't have any short-term rental restrictions. So handle it, go to our rental cheat sheet and look at the different legal options that you have. I mean, obviously the, the renter has to be violating the documents in order for you to enforce something. So um, what about owners who want to rent out a room? Again, look at the language of your documents. Typically, it has to be single family housing, which you know typically means, you know, Persons have to be related in some way, but the language of your documents will give you direction on that. And if your association needs help on how to handle these short-term renters, violations, or owners who are renting out a room, um, reach out to your legal counsel or our firm and we can help you navigate that. Next question, number eight, is from Tony. And she's a homeowner or he's a homeowner. My HOA is a developer controlled until 100% of the lots are sold. In our design guidelines, there's a requirement that a side driveway extension be connected to the existing driveway curved to the side gate and not from the street sidewalk. Many homeowners have extended the side driveway from the sidewalk and some violations are more than a year old. HOA manager says they are aware of the violations but won't give any details on the progress of enforcement due to state privacy laws. How long should it take to bring a violator to court? Does a developer-controlled HOA have any desire to take legal actions? Okay, so Tony, I think probably what's happening here is that the developer is allowing a lot of these violations, and this is a common problem. Sometimes the developer even puts a letter in the owner's file saying, even though you know the CCNRs say this, we're going to allow this. So developers typically, in my experience, don't want a lot of hassles and they don't want to spend a bunch of money in legal fees, you know, pursuing owners on violations. So if I had to guess that's what's happening here, um, they're stalling to bring the violators to court and they probably never will. They don't really have any desire to take legal action. They just want the property to look nice so that they can continue to sell lots or units in the association. What you could do is ask to see the lot file of the owners that have this violation. You're entitled to see those records. You're not entitled to see any litigation that's pending or any advice from legal counsel on this issue under the statute. So you could check to see their file to see if they have an architectural application for this, if it's been approved or not approved. I would document it by sending letters to the board, developer control board stating that you're asking them to enforce it. You might even want to consider going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and filing you know, a $500 one claim petition and have the Department of Real Estate handle it. Um, all of these are suggestions on how you might be able to handle it. Question nine from Alan. We are a community of only 38 single family homes. Do we need to receive monthly paper HOA assessment statements since we were under 50 homes? I can't answer that question unless I know if you have a management company or not. Um, you know, so if you're an association that does not have a management company, then likely no, you're not going to have to do a monthly paper statement. Um, but I don't have enough information to answer that. So, I mean, best practices, of course, is going to be to make sure you're communicating with your owners if they have a past due balance with your association, regardless. Question 10 from Clark, our HOA is updating our governing documents and wondering how to handle transferring a unit to kids and having them pay the preservation fee that is in place. Okay, great question. So, first, I would direct you to our cheat sheet on amending CCNRs, a five-step plan. 
We have a great summary of the procedure your association may want to consider for amending their documents. And it's a great plan that will help you navigate the process. We have language in our documents. We have language that we put in our amendments that we help associations with um, that talks about the preservation fee, which is also kind of known as capital contribution fee or transfer fee. And if it's an estate planning transfer, that the the transfer fee or preservation fee may not be charged. So um, we have language that we can help you with on that. Um, It just depends if you want to charge it or you don't want to charge it. You can write it right into the amendment. But I encourage you to check out our amending CCNR's five-step plan cheat sheet, which will be helpful with you going through that process. Next question is, um, Jerry, if a homeowner submits a formal request for an HOA board agenda item to discuss a rule, is it appropriate for the board to repeatedly refuse to deal with the issue? So we've got a homeowner here asking for the board to talk about something, a rule. Can the board refuse to deal with the issue? Short answer, yes. So what can you do as a homeowner if you want the board to discuss it? Well, you can talk about it in the homeowner forum at your meeting. You can get a petition going in your community asking the board to you know, talk about this rule. Um, and the more owners that you get to sign it, the more likely the board will have to discuss it based upon pressure that the homeowners are putting on them. Um, or run for the board yourself so that then you can be part of the, the policy team that's deciding what's on the agenda for meetings and, and what rules are, are passed or not passed. Next question is from Helen. Don't you have to publish a fine schedule? So good question, Helen. No, you don't. So there was some discussion on this maybe two or three years ago where we had a case in Arizona that talked about you cannot levy or you cannot collect and levy fines unless you have a specific fine policy in place. Um, However, that case was depublished. And so that case is no longer um, mandatory case law that we have to follow. Now, is it best practices? Yes. You, you know, some associations have a fine policy in place that they publish and that they talk about. Um, and they use it as a deterrent so that owners um, you know, comply with the documents, but it's not a requirement. So um, I have some associations that have them. I have some associations that don't. You don't have to have it. Um, but again, just do what's best for your association. If you feel like it's important to have it, then do it. Ron, question 13. Can you sidestep the legislative statute on fine collection by including the amount with the HOA transfer fee when the ownership changes? Ron, good question. Okay, so the, the, what Ron's getting, his point is, is that the statute requires that you have a, a judgment in order to collect a fine against an owner, right? But can we collect it when an owner has a bunch of fines that have been levied against the owner? and they're selling their property, can we just add it to the disclosure statement that is provided to the the buyer at the time that the property is going to be closing escrow and the sale is going to be going through? The short answer is, of course, yes, you can include the amount with the disclosure statement that the owner owes it, but it's not legal to do it that way. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. There's a lot of management companies that just throw that on the disclosure form and say that the seller owns owes this money and this needs to be cleared up prior to the transfer of the property. And sometimes the seller pays it just to move on, um, even though there isn't a judgment. But if you have a savvy seller who's looking at this saying, you can't collect the fine unless you have a judgment against me, 
that's a very valid argument. And, um, you know, what's going to happen is the title company is not going to collect it because they're going to look at the statute and they're going to say, do you, do you have a judgment? And the association is going to say no. And the title company is going to say, then we're not collecting the money. So that's a possible outcome that can happen if you add it to the disclosure statement. I will tell you, though, a lot of associations do do this. Um, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying this is happening and it is getting paid probably more likely than not. Next question is from Clark. Clark, you have a lot of questions today. Um, if you have fines that are uncollectible, can you file against an owner's credit report? So my opinion on that is no. You know, we don't ever advise that reporting on owner's credits reports due to the liability, even if it's an unpaid assessments judgment or a fines judgment. You know, we think there's too much liability to be reporting um, on their credit under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. It's just, it's a lot of liability. You have to update it every time there's a payment or an addition. So can you file against the owner's credit? Um, I don't think that you would be able to do that unless you had a judgment. And even if you have a judgment, I would advise against that based upon all the trip ups that you could have with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Next question is from Gina. Can a homeowner request to speak at a board meeting without letting the board know what the subject is? Just requested to be put on the agenda without anything further said. Okay, so Gina, that's likely not going to be allowed by the board. Um, you know, what I would recommend instead is that you go to the homeowner forum at the association's board meeting and you make whatever statement you want then. Um, but the board meeting is truly, it's a time for the board to make decisions regarding the association. So it's not a free mic type of thing um, where you can just get up and say anything. Um, and so if you want to say something and not let the board know what the subject is, do it during the open session. Be mindful too of, of what you're saying so that you know you're careful that you're not defaming anybody or anything like that. Okay, Alan, question 16. Can you go to small claims court without an attorney to collect overdue HOA fines? Yes, you can. So the board members could go to small claims court, file a small claims lawsuit against an owner. Um, and get a judgment in small claims court. Now, you'd have to be under the jurisdictional limits, which I think it has to be under $2,500. So that, that definitely is an option if you want to do that. Question 17 from Dan. How do you advise associations regarding vehicle towing for persistent parking violations? So if you're going to tow a vehicle, my advice to you is make sure that, number one, the vehicle is parked in violation of your CCNRs. That's important. Number two, make sure you have the ability to tow in your CCNRs. Um, number three, make sure you have the proper signage um, because there are state law requirements and possibly local law requirements that would require specific signage before you can tow a, proper, tow a vehicle from the property. Um, and just be careful. The best advice I can tell you is towing lots of times results in lawsuits. So. You want to make sure that you give the owner plenty of opportunities before you would ever tow them for, you know, a parking violation. Donna Lynn, question 18. For notices of violations, Arizona statutes mentions 21 days. Can the association be less restrictive, provide for a longer time, such as 30 days, and reverse, can the association be more restrictive, such as 14 days? So the section that you're talking about in the Arizona revised statute that talks about 21 days that only really kicks in if there's a very specific event that occurs. So basically, 
what would have to happen is the association sends a formal violation notice and then the owner responds back by certified mail. And that's where that whole 21 days thing starts kicking in in terms of how long we have to respond with you know information that the owner may be requesting. So it's hard for me to comment on your question because that is a very specific fact pattern with the um, owner responding via certified mail and then the 21 day requirement kicking in. I guess the bottom line is for most violations, we don't deal with an owner responding back by certified mail. So for most violations, your board can pick how long they have to comply. And I mean, for like a painting violation, I mean, it's going to be hard to get a painter in really fast. Um, and so you may have to give a longer period to, to comply for an RV removal. You may give a shorter period to comply. So talk to your legal counsel as you're navigating the violations to find out what the violation is. Has the owner responded by certified mail to the violation letter, et cetera, to come up with a strategy for each violation. Question 19, Sheila, we are noticing other HOA communities adjacent to ours opening their outdoor common areas, so we feel pressure to follow suit. How do you know when it is the right time to reopen the use of an outdoor common area, such as a ramada, to small gatherings by reservation? The adjacent pool is open, and we do stress following CDC guidelines, so we're having less than 10 people washing hands. What guidelines should we put in place to reopen? limit the number of people, but how would we monitor that? Ask the person reserving to sign a waiver, use it their own risk, or to your point, do we wait until the governor addresses it specifically? Okay, so I think the governor really did address a lot of issues on March 5th, um, you know, on the reopening of Arizona businesses. And what we're starting to see with a lot of our clients in Arizona HOAs and condominiums is that they are starting to reopen common areas. That's a pretty common thing that we're seeing. Um, so if maybe the Ramada wasn't allowed to be used previously, now we are allowing the Ramada. But we have signage posted in the Ramada saying, um, you know, social distancing, no more than however many people is the number that you pick. Follow CDC guidelines. Same thing on the pool. We have check out our reopening cheat sheet, you know, in terms of what types of signage you'd want to have on the pool to comply with the governor's orders. Um, it's really hard for us to monitor as we start to reopen the clubhouse and we reopen the ramadas and the benches and the, you know, maybe you have a, other meeting areas where people are, are meeting. It's, it's really hard to monitor it. So I think the signage should just make it clear that you're entering at your own risk and please follow social distancing, wear a mask and follow CDC guidelines. I mean, of course, you can ask them to sign a waiver if they're reserving it. The waiver, you know, can be helpful, but it's not going to limit all of our liability. So, I mean, I think now would be a good time for you to start thinking, Sheila, have your association start thinking about a plan for reopening reach out to your manager, reach out to your legal counsel and come up with a safe plan. Check out our cheat sheet on reopening because we give you a lot of good suggestions on that too. But I think things are starting to open up again. Now, mind you, if you have like an outbreak in your association, that would not be the time to be moving forward with um, reopening. So you have to look at all the facts and circumstances that are facing you right now and you know, try to make the best decision possible that you can for your community. And reach out to your trusted advisors, your manager, your attorney, your insurance agent, and get their opinion on it. Question 20, 
let's see, if a homeowner wants to rent a room in his or her home, oops, I skipped one, I'll go back to that one. Um, a homeowner wants to rent a room in his or her home. It concerns me this contributes to the decline of the neighborhood. Can this type of rental be denied by an HOA? So typically this type of rental is not allowed under your documents, but it's always really hard to prove that somebody's doing this. So you may be able to have a certain number of, of unrelated persons living in a home. Um, you may want to check with your city, town, or municipality to see if they have any other code restrictions as well. But it's going to be difficult to for the HOA to prove it. But you're going to have to look at your association's documents to determine what this homeowner is trying to do, if it's legitimate or not under your documents. And also check with the city, town, and municipality to see what their restrictions are on something like this. Question 20 from Jeff. What is a reasonable fee for providing HOA documents to a new homeowner? They seem to vary so much from HOA to HOA. Okay, so Jeff, there's a law on this. Um, and we have a cheat sheet on this as well. It's called the disclosure fee. And the cheat sheet that we have is called disclosure versus transfer fees. And that's on our website. But basically the bottom line on it is whenever there's a sale of a property in an association that has 50 or more lots or units, the association is required by law to provide information to the buyer. And the maximum fee that you can charge is $400 for that. So some associations are charging less than that. Some are charging right at 400 it really just depends on what the baseline fee your association was charging when the law went into effect because they gave you a formula when the law went into effect as to how you can increase it up to the $400 per sale. Okay, next question is from Eli regarding fines. Did you say at the last session that fines cannot be punitive and therefore not be collected if the owner corrects the violation? Just confirming this. I know I, I would never say that. You know, fines can still be collected even if the owner does fix the violation. Be reasonable as a board. And what I mean by that is if there is a fine that is been charged against or levied against an owner and they're remorseful and they're not a repeat offender and the issue has been resolved, you may want to waive some of it. You may want to waive all of it. You may not want to waive it. You just have to look at how, you know, your association's board operates. My feeling is if somebody is remorseful, they address it right away and it's a first time deal, I probably would waive it as a board member, but you're not required to do that. So just know that. Okay. So I did not say that, Eli, the last time. I just want to clarify that. Okay. Next question is from John Burt. Is there a difference between regularly scheduled monthly, quarterly, and unplanned meetings? If a homeowner has specific exterior change requests, this architectural meeting would be scheduled between quarterly meetings. Must this specific meeting be announced 48 hours in advance with an agenda and available for all members to attend? So yes. Okay. So a couple of things on this. So we didn't talk too much about the open meeting law in today's session, but Remember that anytime a quorum of the board is discussing association business, it needs to be an open board meeting and you need to give 48 hours notice to your members. This also extends to regularly scheduled committee member meetings. Okay. So I'm guessing in this case is the regularly scheduled or the meeting that you're asking about is an architectural committee meeting. And so if your architectural committee meets at the same time and it's a regularly scheduled meeting every month, or let's just say they have a meeting every month, 
it doesn't have to be, you know, Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at the pool, okay? It could just be every month they meet. Then, yes, you need to give 48 hours in advance notice of the meeting. And it's a good idea to get the agenda, um, you know, for what's going to be discussed at that architectural committee meeting. But it would have to be regularly scheduled. Most architectural committees and other committees at the board are not regularly scheduled meetings. And so, therefore, an argument is made that if they're not regularly scheduled committee meetings, that they are not subject to the open meeting law. I want to clarify something because I think this could be misconstrued. So, any time the board is meeting, a quorum of the board is meeting to discuss association business, it has to be an open meeting and 48 hours notice is required. Committees look at whether or not it's a regularly scheduled meeting or not. If it's not, you don't have to follow the open meeting law and do the 48 hours notice. But you can if you want to voluntarily. If it is a regularly scheduled committee meeting, you are required to follow the, the open meeting law. Okay, next question is from Christy, one of my favorite clients. Great to see you here today, Christy. Uh, what is the legal process, if any, when a management company states a homeowner has filed bankruptcy so that homeowner cannot be put on a payment plan or a notice of demand of payment cannot be sent to this owner? Okay, so great question. So what are our rights when the association's rights when we have an owner file bankruptcy? We have limited rights, frankly. Um, the United States Bankruptcy Code is written in such a way that there's an automatic stay placed on collection of the debt against this owner. Unless the payment plan is done through the bankruptcy, you know, we we cannot be doing a payment plan individually with the lawyer who's, you know, or with the owner who's in bankruptcy because all of those things are tied up in bankruptcy court. Can we send, you know, violation letters, pursue the owner for, you know, unpaid assessments? No, you shouldn't. You should be turning the matter over to your legal counsel and let your legal counsel handle that matter with the bankruptcy of that owner from that point forward so that you don't violate the automatic stay of the bankruptcy. And just so you know, those cases can be really expensive. So do not violate the automatic stay of the bankruptcy. Um, we've seen cases where an association has continued to pursue an owner that's in bankruptcy and the association has you know, had to pay a pretty penny to the owner, which is kind of ironic because the owner owes the association money. It's flipped and then the association's now paying the owner for violating the stay, which you don't want to have happen. So if you have an owner that's in bankruptcy, make sure that your attorney or management company is handling the bankruptcy and you just got to wait it out. It's painful and it's it hurts, but um, you know we, we have certain rights under the bankruptcy code. We know what those rights are. We will protect your interests of the association um, and make sure that you don't violate the state. Next question is from Marilyn. Can the late fee on assessments be charged monthly until paid or is it a one-time fee? So great question, Marilyn. It just, it depends. So this is kind of a loaded question. So on late fees, we have to look at, you know, is, are you charging an assessment every month? If you are charging an assessment every month and the owner doesn't pay that assessment in that month, you can charge a late fee for that month's failure to pay assessments. Um, if it's an annual assessment, you can only charge one late fee a year. A common question that I get on late fees is, can we charge late fees on late fees? So let's give an example. Let's say somebody doesn't pay, it's a monthly assessment. So as of right now, it's March 16th. They haven't paid January, February, or March in their assessment. Okay, so for January, you can charge a late fee. If you're a planned community, 
it's either $15 or 10% of these assessments. You charge your January late fee, right? Then you move to February. They don't pay their February assessment. You can charge a late fee for not paying their February assessment, but you can't double dip and get another late fee for January. Okay, you already got that in January. Now we move to March. If they don't pay their March assessment by the 15th, you can charge the late fee, like I said, $15 or 10% of the assessment for not paying the March assessment on time. So late fees are tricky. When we get a file from an association to collect on a debt, um, we double check the ledger to make sure that the association has done the late fees correctly. Because if you don't you know, carefully check the ledger, sometimes associations are charging it on the wrong day. Sometimes they're overcharging the amount. Sometimes they're charging late fees on late fees and you can't do any of that under the law. Okay, next question is from Amy. What about when the architectural changes impacts the neighbor negatively and they didn't have approval? So actually, I have a case on this right now where an owner built their addition a foot higher than what was approved by the architectural committee and it's now blocking a portion of the view of the neighbor. So, I mean, I, I guess it just depends. Is Was the uh, change, did they get approval by the board, even if it negatively impacted the neighbor? Um, you know, I would look at that. Um, I would look at, you know, there's lots of questions on views in Arizona. So we have so many beautiful views of the mountains. Um, and so can a view be protected? It, these are all complicated questions. You have to look, is there a view easement? In place that's recorded. Do the documents talk about the CCNRs talk about preserving views? And the architectural committee is going to have to look at all of that. These are hard questions. If you're the neighbor that's been negatively impacted, you know you need to go back and see. Hey, did the owner get approval before they did the work? B. On what basis did the architectural committee or the board approve this? And C. Did they take into consideration that this might negatively impact me? They may have, and they may not have had any choice based upon what they can and can't do under the documents. Uh, the next question is from Walter. Would the attorney for the management company have a conflict of, of interest being the attorney for the HOA? Yes, absolutely, 100%. That's a very bad idea. The attorney for the HOA should be only the attorney for the HOA. Our firm does not ever represent management companies. And we represent the HOA so that, or the condo, so that if you have a disagreement with them, you have independent re representation. And the management company's attorney, their loyalty lies with the management company. So it's not a good idea for an association to, you know, be using the management company's attorney. You should have an independent attorney that you select to work with you. Next question is from Joan. Uh, we have about 10 more questions, so and they seem to be pretty short, so I think we should be wrapping this up here in the next 10, 15 minutes. Joan asks, can a part-time resident from Canada serve as an officer on the board in Arizona? Short answer, yes. Next question, Linda wrote, is it difficult to change the fiscal year of an association? No, but you probably will need to look at what your bylaws say on this and your articles of incorporation. And it's possible you may need to amend those to change the fiscal year end date. But you should also, that would be the best advice, look at what your documents say and then determine if, if you have to amend the documents to change the fiscal year end date. If your documents are silent on this, then you can just go ahead and, you know, most associations have a year end fiscal date of December 31st. Next question is from Linda. 
Any information or direction if one condo owner is fighting with another condo owner in an upstairs-downstairs situation? Asking HOA and property manager to get involved. Do we have to get involved? So that's kind of a loaded question. Um, it, it really depends. Sometimes the upstairs-downstairs is a noise issue. The only time I could see the issue requiring the owner, the association to get involved is maybe if the owner upstairs made an architectural change and didn't comply with special noise reduction things that may be required in the documents like corking and the flooring or um, also association may need to get involved if um, there is some sort of a discrimination claim where there's harassment or discrimination under the Fair Housing Act, we may have to get involved and try to mediate or help the situation as best possible. But in most situations, if it's just kind of like a, you know, differing personalities type of thing, we usually don't get involved. Usually that's considered a neighbor and a neighbor issue, but it really just depends on what the issue is. Is the owner upstairs creating a nuisance? Is there dog barking? I mean, some of those things we would have to get involved in. Question 31 from Betty, a couple of owners are currently trying to implement a trap neuter return program to control feral cats. They use a common area of the community. The previous board approved this. These owners are not abiding by TNR principles. TNR can be helpful, but these owners violate the rules of TNR themselves. It's a really sticky place that the board's in right now. The documents include shutting garage doors and not feeding or sheltering these animals, but they do that as well. Okay, so trapping animals is, is always controversial subject for associations. Of course, asking people and enforcing that people don't feed and shelter the animals that is the best way to stop the feral cat problem. You know, I don't know exactly what they're doing on this trap, neuter, return. Um, maybe they're doing it through the Humane Society. I don't know. So it's hard for me to comment on that. But most associations are not doing that. Just so you know, in my experience, associations typically don't get involved in that. What they do is they ask people to, you know, maintain their property, keep their garage doors closed, trash cans on so that the animals can't get into the trash cans, and don't feed or shelter the animals. And that usually helps with the problem. Um, you may want to contact your city that you live in. Um, the city has a lot of great resources, all the cities that we are working with on the seminar today. And they may have some suggestions for you too on this problem. Question 32, Gloria, with regard to the governor's recent update, with regard to the annual meeting, how does the HOA board comply with Arizona statutes and designate a location for members to drop off the ballot the day of the election? HOA board is holding the annual meeting by a conference call and not Zoom. Okay, so great question. So you could do a ballot box somewhere on the property um, where it's locked and secured where the owners can drop it off the day of the meeting and that would satisfy the location for a member to drop off the ballot on the day of the election. Next question is from Linda. Nothing in the CCNR is about towing. It's in the HOA rules and regulations. Is that acceptable? No, it has to be in the CCNRs. Next question is from Jack, my fellow Green Bay Packer fan and Wisconsin former Wisconsin resident. Nice to see you, Jack, here today. Miss seeing you. Um, our governing documents allow a 10% increase per year in the assessment rate. Fortunately, our association has been able to keep the assessment rate the same for the past five years. Can the board increase the assessment rate above the 10% limit next year? So I think what you're trying to do is like bank on the fact that you haven't done it for 
several years, since for the past five years. So you haven't increased it. And now you want to increase it more because you saved it or banked it those five years. Unfortunately, my opinion is you cannot do that. So what would be a better strategy going forward is even in the years where you may not think you need an increase, still do a one or 2% increase so that you don't put yourself in the situation again. Um, I would go with the 10% increase next year. If you want a higher increase above that, follow the procedure in your documents to get the membership approval to allow for a higher than 10% increase. Uh, we have four more questions. Deborah, our CCNRs call for 15-day notice for an open board meeting. You just said 48 hours. Is that a state law and overrides our CCNRs? So I would say that state law does say 48 hours notice prior to any board meeting. If your CCNRs call for 15 days notice, you also will need to comply with that. So you'll have to go with the more restrictive 15 days notice. Next question is from Barnes. Do, do you do owner pays collections? So great question, Barnes. Um, no, we don't. I could probably spend 20 minutes talking about why we don't do that. So owner pay collections is kind of like another way of saying free legal, where the association's attorney pursues delinquent owners in your association for unpaid assessments, but doesn't charge the association. Um, instead, they, they charge or they get paid when the owner pays at the end. In my opinion, this type of legal arrangement with, with the attorney is highly unethical, frankly. Um, and in our opinion, it truly, it hurts the homeowner and it hurts the association. So basically what it is, is the attorney says that they're going to do everything for free. I'm going to pursue all these owners for unpaid assessments at no charge. And I'll get paid when the owner pays. But they make you sign this contract. The attorney makes the association sign a contract saying that you have to keep them as your attorney forever. And that if you ever fire them, guess what? It's not free anymore. You owe everything that we've ever charged. Um, and so we've seen this just really sour deal for a lot of associations who want to fire the attorney. Um, who does the free legal or the owner pays collections. And what ultimately happens is the association ends up having to write a check to the law firm for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000, you know, $100,000 in legal fees when they want to fire them. And that is just wrong. Our firm does not do it that way. We, our fees are very upfront. We only pursue owners who have credit that we can pursue, right? I mean, we don't go after owners who are uncollectible or who have a trustee sale pending. It doesn't make sense. Um, and so we make good decisions on files to pursue, collection files to pursue based upon the owner's credit. And everything we charge is upfront. There's no surprises. You can hire us and fire us and you know, there's no penalty to fire us. It's just, it's how our firm does business. That's, you know, a cornerstone of our firm is treating our clients fairly and doing the right thing. And I think those free legals programs and those owner pays collections programs are a serious injustice to boards and associations. And what happens is people just get lured in with, oh, we don't have to pay anything. Well, you don't have to pay anything now, but this is like an annuity for the lawyer. They're going to get paid they're going to get paid big at the end and they're counting on that. And so 
make a good decision, a good business decision, and don't put your association in that position ever. Okay, another question from Bruce. There are 180 units in our complex in Scottsdale, and we have never had an association. The declarant owns 80 plus units and states that he makes all decisions, including how much assessments are and how much they are raised and how often. Is this what the declarant doing legal? We would like to form an association with elected members. How much authority does the declarant have? Thank you. Okay, Bruce, I think you need to get legal advice on this because if I had to guess, well, first you got to find out, do we have CCNRs? Do we have articles of incorporation? Do we have bylaws for our association? And then you need to go to an attorney and have them help you determine if you do have all that, maybe the declarant is still in control of the association and they just haven't transferred it yet because they own so many units. Um, And then what legal rights would you have in that situation? If they've never formed one, then that's a separate issue, you know, where you may have to, you know, hire an attorney to help you form one. Okay, last question is from Daniel. And Daniel says, our architectural review committee is defined to be the HOA board members. We've been making decisions based on a majority approval by emails. Is that legal without having an announced meeting? Okay, so good question, Daniel. I would recommend that you not do your approvals anymore, um, you know, because, well, first, I'm guessing, I'm going to guess that your architectural review committee is the entire board. So anytime that you have an architectural review discussion, it's a form of the board discussing association business, right? Architectural review. So that really needs to be done during an open board meeting. So try to put your architectural approvals as an item on your agenda for your board meetings so that you fully comply with the open meeting law. If you have to make an, you know, an approval in between a board meeting, I, I don't suggest that you do it by email. First choice would be to do it in person. If you do do it by email, um, make sure at the next regularly scheduled board meeting that you reaffirm that decision in the meeting minutes. Um, but again, I would really caution you and would suggest that you do all those architectural approvals in compliance with the open meeting law um, because you are a quorum of the board discussing association business. So that should really be done during an open board meeting. I would just like to thank everybody for being here today and wanting to make your communities better. And I appreciate our partnership with the many different um, neighborhood services around Arizona who have come together to create these classes. Our fourth class for the spring 2021 virtual HOA Academy is going to be on Tuesday, April 20th at 11 a.m. And our topic for next month is board member boot camp. Um, you've been elected to your board. We're going to tell you everything you need to know about your duties and responsibilities serving on your board. And we're also going to give you tips on how to have a successful association and how to get things done. And as always, um, bring your questions. We always save time at the end to answer every question that's submitted. And finally, I just want to thank again the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe for organizing this virtual HOA Academy. Um, This is our third class in our series of classes. Um, We're planning on having um, classes throughout 2021 um, with these different neighborhood services departments, uh, likely still on a virtual platform through 2021. So continue to tune in for the classes. We have lots of great programming that we're planning for the next uh, nine months. So thanks for being here today and we look forward to seeing you next month. 
For more information on future classes, seminars, and more podcasts, please visit our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. The attend of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening.